Hello and welcome to ClassicalPodcast.com. I'm Lou Smoley, and I'm here to tell you that for nearly 10 years, we have been streaming free programs of classical music not often heard in the concert hall or on other podcasts or radio programs, and this is all thanks to your generous donations. In order to ensure that our unique programs continue, we appreciate your ongoing support. We welcome donations, large or small, and remind you that because we are a nonprofit organization, your contributions are fully tax-deductible. Thank you so much for helping us to make ClassicalPodcasts.com one of the most listened-to websites of its kind in the world. Hello and welcome to this edition of Buried Treasure. I'm Lou Smoley, uh, and I'm happy to present to you today the first of two parts of a series entitled The Russian Futurists. The Russian Futurist movement was an outgrowth of the French and Italian Futurists of the 19th and early 20th centuries, who were mainly artists and literary figures. Their primary premise was to foster the development of modern ideas through their respective genre, reflecting the new era of mechanism and industry. Soon this goal was taken up by several Russian composers who brought to their music during the early period of the 20th century an experimental orientation, intent on devising music that was forward-looking and creative, while representative of the nature of the new mechanistic age. The Russian Revolution was thought to be the ideal background for such a new sound in music, or at least a new focus. Rejecting what some considered bourgeois music of the 19th century in this context, a few composers sought to eliminate the decorativeness that they thought enveloped the Romantic era in fantasy, rather than in reality or everyday life. The music of such Russian composers as Roslovets, Mosolov, Deshevov, Davidenko, Yudeke, Knesson, or Pachenko exemplified this new wave of musical style in Russia. They hoped to provide an alternative to the standard bearers of tradition, such as Prokofiev, Shostakovich, and Mieskovsky. Although Shostakovich, in his early years, before the mid-30s crisis, did exhibit some of the musical aspects that the futurists were noted for, adventurous harmonies and rhythms that had a mechanistic aspect uh, and imitated modern industrialism, he accepted uh, the criticism that was foisted on him in the 30s uh, and retreated somewhat uh, to uh, a more conservative approach to composition. The first composer that we're going to deal with today is probably the the oldest of the group, Alexander Gedeke. Uh, The revolution was an important influence on him, as it was, as I mentioned, uh, for all of the early futurists who wanted to make a contribution to its spirit. The romantic idealism seemed to give way to the spirit of the times, as a realism that was devoid of idealistic notions considered bourgeois. 
Some composers align themselves with this adventurous and allegedly realistic approach in theory, but their music retained much of the traditional late and romantic spirit. Yudeka was a composer much in this vein. Uh, his music may seem uh, somewhat um, conservative, even traditional, uh, but he did dabble in some adventurous uh, aspects, uh, particularly when it suited his more um, historical purposes, such as in the work of his that we're going to hear today called At War. Uh, its um, subtitle is From the Diary of a Dead Soldier, and it consists of six what the composer calls improvisations for orchestra. It is his opus 26. There are seven parts, as I said. Uh, the first is an introduction, uh, followed by uh, a piece called In the Trenches. The third is an attack. Then comes uh, a movement called Silence. Then we hear a funeral march. Uh, next following is a piece called Battle. And finally, the ending. Uh, and we hear this work now performed by the Russian Philharmonic, directed by Konstantin Kremitz.
We've opened the first part of our two-part series on Russian futurism with the work of Alexander Gedeke. It's uh, what's called At War, from the Diary of a Dead Soldier, Opus 26, and was performed uh, by the Russian Philharmonic Orchestra, directed by Konstantin Krimets. Our next composer, Nikolai Roslavets, uh, was born in the Ukraine about a year before Stravinsky, 1881, uh, is probably the guiding light in the early uh, Russian futurist period. He was both of Russian and Ukrainian origin, a convinced modernist uh, and a cosmopolitan thinker uh, who unfortunately uh, was uh, uh, the subject of, of much criticism by uh, the Russian establishment uh, and his music was officially suppressed from 1930 onwards. Uh, during his lifetime thereafter, he never uh, resurfaced and was not given the opportunity to do so, uh, having died uh, during World War II in 1944. He's written several works, uh, including symphonic poems, uh, two violin concertos, five string quartets, uh, and, and many chamber works. We're going to hear a few of his pieces uh, because they are of such significance in the early Russian futurist movement. He was trained in the Moscow Conservatory principally and studied under Mikhail Ipolitanov Ivanov and Alexander Ilyinsky. As to uh, his contribution to futurism, I think the main thing beside his compositions was uh, the uh, fashioning of a new concept one akin, interestingly enough, to Schoenberg's, a concept of developing composition by what he called synthetic chords that contain both the horizontal and vertical sound material for an entire work. Um, and that's why it, it makes um, a, for a good comparison with Schoenberg's 12-tone serialism. Uh, Although in the 1920s, Ruslovets criticized Scriabin, he was definitely influenced by the earlier composer's works, particularly his mystical chords, uh, which in Ruslovets' hands turned into a principle called synthetic chords, uh, usually consisting of six to nine tones uh, that were both chordal and were linear so that he could devise an entire composition based on the order or revision of the order uh, of these tones in his, quote, synthetic chord. Uh, and, and there were, in that respect, a, a kind of combination of expanded tonality and free atonality in his music. Uh, one thing I should mention is that he... Uh, did uh, work for a while uh, with folk material when he was in Tashkent in, in Uzbekistan and wrote what was considered the first Uzbek ballet, Pachta, or Cotton. Uh, in his later compositions, uh, he refined his notion of synthetic chords uh, and uh, developed them 
uh, as I think evidenced in, in his work in the mid-30s, which we're going to hear, called the Chamber Symphony, uh, which contains music that I think uh, reaches the peak of the new system that Ruslevets developed. We'll briefly present a kind of chronological overview uh, of Ruslevets music, starting with an orchestral work called uh, In the Hours of the New Moon, which was written between 1910 and 1913. This is a, basically an impressionistic work, which is the style that Ruslevets began with, uh, particularly uh, enveloped in his interest in Scriabinesque character in his music. The work itself is a haunting fantasy uh, which delves deeply into atmospheric mood swings uh, and uh, I think it, it grabs you from the very opening. Uh, and so let's listen to it now. Uh, the In the Hours of the New Moon by Roslovitz. It's performed by the BBC Scottish Symphony, directed by Ivan Volkov.
That was Roslevet's uh, In the Hours of the New Moon, written between 1910 and 1913, and performed by the BBC Scottish Symphony, directed by Ivan Volkov. We follow up with a later work from 1925, the first of Roslevet's two violin concertos. Uh, this is still basically steeped in Impressionism, again following in the work we just heard in the hours of the new moon in its haunting atmospheric character. Uh, and in this work, more so than in the earlier one, uh, we hear more of a development of Roslovet's idea of synthetic chords, which, as I said, um, was somewhat based upon Scriabin's uh, notion of mystic chords and is akin to the Schoenbergian system, although different from it. We're going to listen to this first violin concerto with Elena Ibrahimov, the violinist, and the BBC Scottish Symphony, once again under the direction of Ilan Volkov.
Thank <laughs> you.
Violin Concerto No. 1 by Roslovets, performed by Elena Ibrahimova, with the BBC Scottish Symphony, directed by Elon Volkov. I want to now show you the skills with which Roslovets wrote for the piano in a 1923 work, which was his last of five piano sonatas. It's a relatively brief work compared to the earlier ones. Begins with a spirited opening, which adds a touch of gaiety, then a touch of flippancy, with a dash of romance. It's also extraordinarily creative and most fascinating uh, to listen to. There are multicolored threads that interweave in the work. The second movement is forceful, almost march-like, and yet still retains fervent intensity. There's a complex array of material brilliantly interwoven uh, in this and the following movement, the finale, which seems more settled within itself than the earlier movements. The pianist is Olga Adryushenko.
That was Roslevet's Piano Concerto Number no. 5 from 1923, performed by Olga Adriushenko. Now we come to what I think is Roslevet's masterpiece. I mean, he wrote many great works. But the Chamber Symphony, I think, stands out as the centerfold of his compositions. Uh, it was written between 1934 and 1935, and uh, is in the traditional four movements. The first is marked Largo Manantropo, and then Allegro Resoluto. The second, an Adagio. The third, a Scherzo. And the finale, Lentoso, followed by an Allegro Non Troppo, Energico. We hear the BBC Scottish Symphony once again under the direction of Ilan Volkov in the Chamber Symphony by Nikolai Roslovets.
music of Nikolai Roslovets on our program on Russian Futurism, his Chamber Symphony, performed by the BBC Scottish Symphony, directed by Ilan Valkov. Although we're not going to sample, sample from the piano works which have been recorded, uh, those of Roslovets, I really recommend them. There is a marvelous series on the Sybil label of Russian futurists that uh, contains many uh, piano works by uh, Roslovets, and, and I highly recommend them. I also recommend the uh, first two piano sonatas, which are interesting in that they are very much in the mode of uh, the creative and adventurous aspects of Roslovets' musical career from the mid-teens. There's also a wonderful uh, fourth violin sonata in one movement uh, that is contained on an Oxos recording that I highly recommend. But we're going to go on now to uh, another of the early Russian futurist composers, Mikhail Gnesin. Gnesin uh, was basically a traditional composer, somewhat on the sentimental side of Russian futurism, known for his academic work at St. Petersburg Conservatory, where he became a teacher of, among others, Aram Kachatorian. Gnesin uh, wrote uh, several piano works uh, that are characteristic uh, of his style and of his creativity. He also wrote works on Jewish themes, um, which in the early days uh, of the Russian um, uh, Revolution uh, was acceptable uh, uh, until Russian anti-Semitism began to raise its head later on in the Stalinist era. We're going to hear first uh, a work uh, called a Requiem, Opus 11. Uh, that shouldn't uh, conjure up uh, the typical uh, work that's written with that title. Uh, this is not liturgical music. Uh, this is more in the theme of possibly a prayer for the dead, uh, which is outside of liturgical principles. It's written for a chamber ensemble of two violins, viola, cello, and piano, uh, although originally the piano part was originally written uh, instead for a harp. Uh, it's a strange requiem, clearly, because it's, it, it's mournful, but not really in the way one might expect uh, of, of a liturgical requiem, which it isn't. Uh, but yet its character is quite impressive, uh, and it's, it, the fact that it was written in the early part of Gnesson's career, I think, makes it significant as well. Let's listen to the Requiem Opus 11 by Gnesson. It's performed by Edward Yosun and Anna Slozkovskaya, the violinists, with Stanislav Kiryakin, the violist, Dmitry Surikov, the cellist, Shulman Basinia at the piano.
Requiem by the Russian futurist composer Mikhail Gnesin. Uh, a quite unusual requiem, indeed. Now we're going to hear another work that is influenced this one uh, more so, I think, by the Jewish side of uh, Gnesin's compositional character. It's called Idigaya, Opus 48. It's bright in character dance-like, if you will, has folk elements, uh, more so, as I said, on the Jewish side of, of the folk idiom. Uh, there is sentiment and there is joy here. Uh, again, we're going to uh, hear Edward Yatsun, the violinist, with Stanislav Kiryakin, the violist, and Dmitry Surikov, cellist, this time with Alexander Morogovsky, the clarinetist, Nikita Glagolev, the hornets, and Shulman Basinia again at the piano. Adigaya, Opus 48, by Mikhail Gnesin.
Next, from Ganesan's pen, we hear another early work, uh, three characteristic maladies written uh, to the stone guest by Alexander Pushkin, Opus 51. These are three movements uh, that are each uh, individually stylized to describe the character of the players in Pushkin's poem. Uh, the first is Don Juan, which is, of course, a serenade, marked Andantino, a lilting waltz, soft and tender. The second is on Donna Anna, a largamente, a kind of lullaby, which interestingly enough has Jewish flavor to it. Uh, and the third is Laura, uh, an allegro moderato, very lively and carefree, but still there is an underlying Jewish character. We hear Kira Rodin, the cellist, with Andrei Pizarev at the piano.
Music again of Michael Knessen, his three characteristic melodies written to the Pushkin poem, The Stone Guest, Opus 51. Now another work by Gnesson, which I think is worthy of hearing, uh, his trio for piano, violin, and cello, a later work from Opus, Opus 63. It's dedicated to the memory of, as the composer puts it, our lost children, and is a relatively late work, as the Opus number indicates. Its dedication uh, is borne out in the, its melancholy character, yet there is a sense of, of bravery uh, in enduring the suffering caused by the loss of children. Edward Yatsun is the violinist with Shulman Bassini at the piano and Dmitri Surikov, the cellist. Thank you. 
We've heard again from Michael Gnesson's pen, his trio for piano, violin, and cello, performed by Eduard Jotsun, the violinist, with Shulman Vassinia, the pianist, and Dmitry Surikov, the cellist. Now we turn to another interesting composer from this early period of Russian futurism, Nikolai Abuchov. He was uh, born in Russia and uh, studied at the St. Petersburg Academy uh, under Maximilian Steinberg and Nikolai Cherepnin. During the mid-1910s, Obuchov uh, discovered another yet um, series of dealing with harmony um, using 12 tones akin to Schoenberg's dodecaphonic method uh, and applied it in the 1910s and later to songs and piano works, uh, probably also influenced by Scriabin, particularly his Mysterium as a guide. Uh, Obuchov's Livre de Vey, the Book of Life, um, was intended uh, to predicate the notions of Christianity, particularly the Orthodox version uh, in his music. Uh, he became a friend of Ravel's, who defended Abuchov during the 1920s. And, and at that time, the composer created an electroacoustic instrument called a qua sonore, similar to the Onis Martinot, or theremin, uh, of Lev Termin. But he sustained injuries uh, from a late-night mugging that made it impossible for Abuchov uh, to compose and unfortunately he died soon thereafter. We're going to listen to three pieces of his, uh, and they're all for piano. First is a series of pieces called Conversions from 1915. These are short pieces. They're marked Crime, Remords, Lermes de Song, and Inspiration Sublime. Uh, and that's performed, as all these uh, works by Obuchov, uh, by the pianist Thomas Gunther.
Next, uh, from the pen of Obuchov, we hear his Creation de l'Or, Creation of Gold, of 1916. Uh, and that's going to be followed directly uh, by uh, Le Temple est mesuré from 1952, also performed by Thomas Gunther at the piano.
piano music by uh, the Russian composer Nikolai Abuchov, member of the Russian Futurists, which we're featuring on this first part of a two-part series. Now we come to one of the major names, uh, along with Roslevets, uh, although very different from him, in the Russian Futurist movement, as it were. It really wasn't a movement. It was a series of composers who all had this notion of, uh, of advancing and, and generating experimental music of a sort during the first period of the 20th century. Lurie was born in St. Petersburg of wealthy Sephardic Jewish parents. Uh, he was considered the first radical futurist in Russian music. He was inspired by the independent Russian modern school that included, for example, Alexander Bloch and his friend Anan Akhmatova. Lurie was converted to neoclassicism of a rather astringent style, so his music is not atonal as such, but combines elements of tonality and atonality uh, to produce a, a very special effect. Although Lurie wrote a good deal of music, uh, we're only going to play some selections from his piano works, because I think they give you an idea more than even in his orchestral or chamber music uh, of his special art of composition. Um, so I will mention, however, a few important works like the uh, Concerto da Camera for Violin and Strings, which is a later work, 1945, uh, as, as important, and his, his work uh, called Little Gidding on a text by T.S. Eliot from 1945 as well, which was written for tenor uh, and chamber orchestra. Of the piano music that we're going to listen to, we're going to start with his Quattro poems, four poems, Opus 10, from 1912. Uh, there are four parts. The first is called Spleen. The second, Caprices. The third, Self-Portrait, which is rather perky and impish. Uh, and the last, called Ironies. Uh, it is in this music that I think uh, Lurie foreshadows the Dadaist movement in art. So let's listen to this work, The Four Poems, Opus 10, uh, performed again by Thomas Günther at the piano.
Now we'll go on to a work written two years later called Syntheses, Opus 16. It's in five movements. They are Glant, slow, Moderatamente Anime, Vite, Assis Vite, and Mesur. This is somewhat close in style to the second Viennese school idiom, but you'll see the difference. It is mosaic in texture with shifting moods uh, and gestures and effects that abound in the music. Again, uh, at the piano, Thomas Gunther.
the multi-movement piece Syntheses, Opus 16 by Lurie, and now uh, a wonderful one-movement work uh, from a year later, 1915, Formes in the Air. Uh, this reflects Lurie's study of Buzzoni's sketch for a new aesthetic of music in 1917. Uh, which we talked about during our program on Buzzoni. Uh, there are suggestions of Chagall's magical floating figures in the music. The, the piece is dedicated to Picasso, uh, and I should mention that structurally the staves are arranged at random, not continuous, uh, as it were, in the air, as the title indicates. The notation foregoes what we call braces, and fans out the registers into up to five systems, resulting in performers applying long pauses, arbitrary tempo changes, or murky intonation. There are no tempo markings or bar lines in this piece. Recurring figures or phrases appear, but the dynamics are precise, and the work is very futuristic. Again, Thomas Gunter at the piano.
Formas en l'air, Forms in the Air, uh, by Lurie, performed again by Michael Gunter at the piano. We're going to conclude now with uh, another work, a later work, 1950, well, it's a little later than Formes en l'air, 1915. Uh, it's called Daily Routine, Odenevnoi Uzor. It's a five-minute work, uh, all relatively short pieces, which is kind of like a, a daily routine, as the title seems to indicate. And the movements are called Etude, Promenade, Schatten in German, or Shadows, Sorcery, and Courageous. Let's listen then to this work called Daily Routine by Arthur Lurie from 1915.
1915 by Arthur Lurie. I was thinking about playing the Symphonia Dialectica, his first symphony from 1930, but at this time uh, Lurie seemed to lose interest in his experimental and avant-garde character and became more neoclassical, and so I just didn't think that it was appropriate for this program. We might do it at another time, however. Instead, we're going to go on with the next composer in our Russian futurist exploration, Ivan Vishnigradsky, whose dates are 1893 to 1979. He studied at the St. Petersburg Conservatory with Nikolai Sokolov uh, and was a disciple, uh, who was a disciple of Rimsky-Korsakov. And like his several colleagues, uh, he was greatly influenced by the music of Alexander Scriabin, as well as Scriabin's mystical philosophy. Um, and in the context of Wisnegrovsky, he developed an idea of sound continuum, the sound of the cosmic consciousness, as it were, ultra-chromaticism, consisting of microtones that generate scales in quarter, third, or sixth tones. New scales organized not in multiples of 12, but other numerical groupings called non-octavian spaces, cycles which repeat not at the octave, but at a larger or smaller interval. Vishnagrodsky also developed a rhythmic counterpart to this system, which he called rhythmic ultrachromaticism, um, creating small changes in speed that are, are, are be between the intervals of normal composition. As a result, Vishnagrodsky needed to develop new instruments, causing him to leave Russia in 1920. He created a quarter-tone piano with three manuals in 1923, which didn't quite solve the problems created by performance of his works, but that he did resolve them to his satisfaction uh, by using several pianos tuned to different tones, three, six, or 12. 
Vishnagradsky won the admiration of Messian after a performance of his music in 1937. Despite his creativity, the world ignored him. Um, even the admiration of Messian or Henri de Tillieu or Claude Balif or Hélène Bancart simply wasn't enough to bring uh, Vichnitgradsky the recognition he so well deserved. We're going to open with a work called The Red Gospel, his early Opus 8 from 1918 to 1920. It's a work for bass, baritone, and two pianos, which are tuned in quarter tones. Again, I mentioned earlier that the October Revolution was an important aspect of the Russian futurist stimulus. Um, here the, the text is by Vasily Knyavtsev and applies sacred texts of Christian liturgy in a rather blasphemous perversion of their original function. So let's listen to the Red Gospel uh, performed by Michel Ducharme, the bass baritone, with Pierrette Lepage and Bruce Mather at the pianos.
Red Gospel by the Russian futurist Ivan Vishnegradsky. Another work by this composer is called Etude sur la carré magique sonore. Uh, it's his opus 41 and is a much later work, 1957. Uh, here, the composer concerned himself with his revisions of his sound continuum that I mentioned earlier. The A-tune uses half-tone chromaticism. We'll hear it now performed by, again, Thomas Gunter at the piano. L'étude sur la carré magique sonore, opus 40.
That was work by Vishnigradsky, his Etudes sur la Carre Magique Sonore, Opus 47, performed by Thomas Gunther. We're going to conclude this first part of our exploration of Russian futurists with another work by Ivan Vishnigradsky, uh, his two Russian songs, Opus 29, written between 1940 and 1941. Now this is post-ultrachromatic, uh, using quarter tones uh, and uh, various devices that change the, the timbral as well as the, the sonic perception of the piece. The first song is called Ru Russia, uh, and is a, uh, to a text by Andre Bailey. The second, Our March, the text is by Vladimir Miyakovsky. And we'll hear splashing, pounding chords in the second piece, the second song, uh, and a, a rather sublime uh, uh, dedication uh, to Russia, the homeland, uh, in the first. Once again, uh, we hear the bass baritone Michel Ducharme with Pierrette Lepage and Bruce Mather at the pianos. Is 
So we've closed our first part of this two-part series on Russian futurism uh, with two Russian songs, Opus 29 by Ivan Mishnegrodsky. Next time, we'll hear from several composers uh, in this wonderful uh, period of Russian experimentalism. Uh, We'll hear from Lev Knipper, Uh, as well as another master of Russian futurism, Alexander Mosolov. Until then, this has been Lou Smoley for Buried Treasure. And please don't forget to make a contribution to the website to keep it a free service. Just go to our homepage at classicalpodcasts.com where you can donate any amount through PayPal.